Welcome to the Bucket Problem, Episode 8. I am your host, Ace Ambender, flying solo today after an action-packed last week. Uh, it's, uh, it's a little bit more of a, of a low-key setting today. We are brought to you, as always, by the fine folks over at Homefield Apparel. I will get it out of the way right now. Use promo code BUCKETPROBLEM for 15% off your first order at homefieldapparel.com. Thank you for doing that to support the podcast and the site. Today we're going to start doing the uh, football preview in earnest a little bit and kick it off with a preseason mailbag. So without further ado, let's get into it. Uh, Kurtonic on Twitter asks, what is your biggest reason for optimism for the future of Michigan football? Uh, for this, we went over a lot of this during of all things, uh, Stephen Godfrey's appearance on the pod over the weekend. And one thing I think needs to be said from a big picture standpoint is that, uh, as Godfrey pointed out, Michigan is very much one of a small number of schools that can really be comfortable during this period of realignment, knowing that no matter what, the program is going to come out in a relatively stable place. You cannot say that right now about certain teams in the certain programs that are down towards the the bottom part of even power five conferences. You certainly cannot say that about the entire remains of the big 12 right now. I don't even know what that's going to be called. Uh, You cannot say that about really any group of five school at the moment. uh, And I mean, there are a lot of power programs that that may get left in the lurch here, and, and Michigan is not going to be one of them. That is, a, I realize, a long-term, big-picture thing, but it also may be one of the most important things. So that is worth holding on to as we go through this. Um, but as for uh, a, a less macro reason for optimism, I do think that Michigan is well set up after this year to either— ride the wave of a bounce-back Harbaugh season into um, at at least improving on where they've been at the last couple seasons and, you know, hopefully let us kind of throw 2020 out the window a little bit and start fresh with a young and interesting coaching staff. And if that doesn't happen, then Michigan has a pretty – easy setup for pulling the ripcord. We don't need to rehash the details of Jim Harbaugh's contract, except to say that the buyout after the season for firing him is very minimal. So, I mean, he he was not negotiating from a position of strength uh, during his contract renegotiation as they, as they discussed an extension. Um, So Michigan is in a very good position to go after Matt Campbell even Luke Fickle, who I will mention Godfrey brought up on on the podcast and has also said on the most recent episode of Split Zone Duo that, yes, Fickle is deeply, deeply Ohio State. And also Notre Dame, given his Catholic roots, is probably the other school that he is most interested in taking over. And he is going to be very picky. But Ohio State and Notre Dame are not jobs that are supposed to come up in the very near future. Uh, I mean, maybe Brian Kelly drops off precipitously or 
decides to call it a career at a relatively young age, but I mean, Brian Day seems pretty darn locked in. Uh, Kelly's in a in a very good position at Notre Dame, and there's only uh, so much more that Fickle can accomplish at Cincinnati, especially after you know realizing last year that no matter how well they do, uh, certainly a four-team playoff is not going to allow them in, and even a 12-team playoff, it's going to take really being perfect. And if Fickle has aspirations for success above that, and I imagine he does given his competitiveness, then, I mean, Cincinnati is not going to be his final stop. And I don't know how much longer he's, I I mean, if anyone is comfortable being in Ohio and waiting, then I, I think it's Luke Fickle. But I still think that Michigan is absolutely going to have to kick the tires on him, as as Godfrey has has pointed out, and uh, and I think they should, if they're smart, they should take a really serious look at him. I I still prefer Matt Campbell. I think Matt Campbell is really remarkable, and right here is where I'm going to leave a little excerpt excerpt from the show with Godfrey in case you didn't hear it, and I really encourage you to listen to it as my final reason for optimism heading into the season. So let's just say that the year goes on, and I don't have their schedule in front of me, but let's say it's enough for them to move on from Harbaugh. I'm going to tell you this right now. There are hidden marks against schools that you don't hear about in the media in, in coaching circles. It's like in the Dust Bowl, homeless people would mark mailboxes where and like only they could see it as like what place would give you food or like stay away, they'll shoot you on sight. Mm-hmm. There will be marks against Michigan in the coaching world because – there's going to be a consensus. I'm not trying to say it's right or wrong. I'm just telling you what I know that the administration won't get out of the way that the dogma of Michigan will weigh you down. But if I'm Matt Campbell, I probably smile and take that on. I don't think enough smart people at Michigan, a place filled with supposedly smart people could get over the Luke fickleness or the, the Ohio-ness of Luke fickle. Um, I do think Matt Campbell, I think Matt Campbell would go obviously. But I will say this, it's a short list for him to leave Ames. It's a way shorter list than people realize. So that's fun, right? A little bit of catnip for you before the season. Uh, appreciate that, Godfrey. Once again, I really encourage you to listen to that episode if you haven't already. On to the next mailbag question from at Singing Brick on Twitter. Uh, Brick with a one. Uh, what will it take for Michigan to have a cohesive offensive game plan throughout an entire season? Who boy. Regular coaching changes and game planning by committee has equated near constant disappointed in this constant disappointment in this area. You're telling me, buddy. Um, I mean, I, I mentioned this. Well, I'm just going to keep pimping my own work, but that's that's kind of what you do. Um, I wrote a post this week on the five biggest wild cards for Michigan's offense, and one of them to me is uh, Sharon Moore uh, sliding into the offensive line coach role after being Michigan's tight ends coach for the last four seasons. He's been a tight ends coach uh, his whole coaching career, but he was an offensive lineman at Oklahoma. So it is not like he is um, totally unfamiliar with that position. And the other thing that's important to me in that move is that Harbaugh, Jim Harbaugh has generally had some issues, um, especially at Michigan with getting the right balance of, coaches with their hands in the game plan. And a lot of that has been 
offensive line coaches being involved in the running game plan uh, as a run game coordinator in ways where it didn't really mesh. So we saw this with the uh, Tim Drevno, Pep Hamilton hybrid offense of uh, it just it just didn't work out. Um, we saw this with Ed Warner, um, and I think that's a big reason why Warner is not still on the staff is just that he's a very good offensive line coach. I, I, there's no arguing that at this point in, in Warner's career, um, but. I would say uh, one benefit to having more on staff is that he's a guy who served as a recruiting coordinator, and that's uh, recruiting has not necessarily been a, a strength of um, Michigan's offensive line coaches uh, of late, and that's probably going to be more his focus beyond the um, on-field technique stuff than having his hand in the offensive game plan. So... My hope here is that now it is more of just a Jim Harbaugh and Josh Gaddis thing, thing. I don't think Harbaugh is ever going to have his hand completely out of the offense. Um, but at least having fewer fewer cooks in the kitchen uh, uh, hopefully um, streamlines this a bit, makes it more cohesive, allows for something where, say, the passing game and the running game actually seem to play off of each other. Uh, that... Um, I think is something that we will hopefully see going forward uh, and is certainly the route to a more cohesive game plan as it's it becomes more Gaddis's offense with Harbaugh's input than a Gaddis and Warner and Harbaugh thing or whatever was going on uh, the last year or two. So that that's... I, I mean, it is really about finding the right balance. And yes, Jim Harbaugh, uh, you know, relinquishing probably a little bit of control. And we will see how that goes. If there's a time for him to really commit to doing that after the last few years, it, it's got to be now, uh, given, you know, where what his job status is at. And I, I would think he knows that to a certain extent. So we'll see. I mean, Pride is a hell of a thing with coaches, and coaches get very married to a certain way of doing things. But um, I, I, I can see, I can see a way where this offense becomes significantly more cohesive and much better in a hurry because the coaches are more aligned. That said, we've also heard that before, so you know, we'll see how it goes. The next question comes from at business underscore read on Twitter again. What game on the schedule are you most irrationally excited about watching? My rational choice would be Ohio State slash Penn State slash MSU slash Washington. But my irrational choice is Nebraska. Strong irrational choice. Uh, beating Nebraska on Scott Frost Day is always something to irrationally look forward to. I'm definitely look forward, looking forward to those sideline shots. Um, we'll see. Maybe of both coaches in that game. Uh, hopefully it goes well. Um, for me, uh, if if Nebraska has been taken off the table, there are two games that stand out. I'm cheating and taking two because I can. It's my podcast. Um, one is Michigan-Indiana. Just for the sheer Twitter shenanigans that are going to happen in the week leading up to that game and also almost certainly during that game, and, um, you know, 
for real, us possibly losing our, our beloved home field sponsorship <laughs> at some point during that week. But no, we're, we're just going to have a lot of fun with that one. And uh, also, it, it is uh, the first time in my lifetime that Michigan will be facing Indiana as a revenge game, which uh, I hope they treat it as such and uh, demolish them and take advantage of it. Um, or, you know, maybe in this year, beat them. Beat them would be good. Uh, they're they're supposed to be pretty good. So this this would be a fun year to, I mean, it's silly if Michigan ends up coming in as the underdog uh, in a home game against Indiana, but uh, could very well happen. Could very well be a, a funny upset. Uh, could also be just Michigan riding the ship uh, and you know um, helping get back on track after last year. And we'll see. I, I I'm I'm looking forward to that one for a lot of reasons. Um, many of them having to do with uh, trolling our sponsor, um, but the other one that I'm definitely, um, if we're if we're going to call it irrational, irrationally excited for is the opener against Western Michigan on September 4th, because I just and I mean, I'm saying this with a with a certain level of aspirational, just whatever, because uh, the Delta variant is spreading fast and uh, it should be acknowledged that I, I don't know if we're going to have as smooth a season as we were hoping for and uh, kind of expecting when things had initially settled down with this pandemic. Sorry for that little preface. But it's it hopefully will be the first home game that really feels like a fall home Saturday in a long time, I am. I will be living in an apartment at at the time of the game, relatively close to the stadium, and I want to be able to feel it. And uh, I also want to turn on the TV and be able to see a hundred thousand plus in the stands and feel that energy. And that is going to be exciting and fun, even if you know. Hopefully, Western Michigan is not the most competitive opponent on the schedule by any stretch. I, I I just want some feeling of normalcy again with football, and um, having people in the stands really helps. Uh, last year was surreal and uh, a bit depressing at times, and I'm, I'm very excited for things to be a little bit different this year. Uh, next question came in via email from TJ. Everyone loves to make a floor slash ceiling projection for any team. For Michigan, I feel like that's really hard to do until we get a result from the Washington game. I cannot recall a single non-conference Michigan game that could completely change the trajectory of the entire season. It also doesn't help that we cannot seem to get a clear road on how good Washington is given their limited COVID season sample size. My question. Assume Michigan, Michigan wins the Washington game. What's a realistic floor slash ceiling then? And sigh. Assume Michigan loses the Washington game. What's a realistic floor slash ceiling after that? Thanks, TJ. All right. Um, so here's the thing about early season games between good programs, uh, even in week two. They might not tell you anything, except how good those two teams happen to match up on that particular day. Um, I, I always think about, first of all, almost every Michigan Notre Dame game that's ever happened as being not particularly indicative of how the season is going to go. And I also think of 
Ohio State losing to Virginia Tech uh, when they had JT Barrett at quarterback and were flummoxed by Virginia Tech's bare front and then uh, ran the table and won the national championship. So, um, you know, there are... It, 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 they look. They went from looking very vulnerable to looking very, very, very good. Um, so, I, I don't. I don't want to say the Washington game is meaningless. I, I, I think there will be a fair amount to take away from that. I think mostly it's going to be figuring out the floor because if Michigan gets waxed by Washington, that is likely going to tell us something. It's likely going to expose certain issues with the team, and we will get an idea of how fixable those are. Uh, I imagine those problems, if they come up, are going to be in the defense back seven and in the passing game, um, and we'll find out whether those are fixable. I mean, it, this is a team that could very well, uh, I hate to say this, but it could still take a bit into the season to find their quarterback. This is a competition with three different players uh, definitely in it. Um, and not, a t- I mean, as much as they're talking about McNamara as the locked-in starter, uh, McNamara is a guy who had one solid performance in relief against Rutgers and one pretty disastrous start against Penn State. So there's not a, a ton to go on with that and... Yeah, we'll see. Um, I, I think that competition might be a little bit more open than Harbaugh's letting on, and he has just, uh, I think, smartly had a had a different way of approaching, maybe discussing um, incoming quarterbacks and uh, where their position on the depth chart in 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 the spring. Um, but yeah, um, it. I mean, like it's it's going to be hard to get a read on how good Washington is both heading into and coming out of this game. Uh, so, I mean, if Michigan beats Washington, that raises the floor. I, I don't know how much it means beyond that. Washington is getting a fair amount of preseason hype at the same time. As TJ mentioned, they had a, a very limited season last year. There wasn't a lot to take away from that. And we're only going to have a couple weeks of evidence heading in. So I, I, I think the main thing... I want to encourage people to do about the Washington game is not overreact too much one way or the other. Um, although I may rescind that statement if they blow out Michigan. I think that's the one way where, um, depending on the fashion in which it happens, that may be something to take away. Say if, if, if Michigan just cannot put together a functional passing game or the secondary looks like it did in the Michigan State game last year and other games. Um, yeah, um, uh, so we'll see how how that one goes. But I'm not I'm not ready to make very concrete statements about what that game means until we get further into the season. And that that point in the season is probably going to be after the Washington game actually happens because that's the nature of how early season games work so it, it's going to be something where you can probably take a lot of things away about individual players but until you know scheme comes together until we get deeper into the season and see if maybe they were playing 
they weren't playing their best 11 out there on each side of the ball. I, I mean, there's there's a lot of things that you just have to get into the season to learn. Even when you're a really good program, and Michigan at this point is fighting to get back to that point. So we shall see. One thing you can be certain about is that you can find extremely dope, comfortable, and really just mascot fantastic. Um, that's not a real phrase, but we're going with it. Uh, apparel, uh, fully licensed at Home Field Apparel. Uh, they are our beloved sponsor. They have just finished dropping a, a wonderful Miami collection that includes uh, Sebastian the Ibis coming out of the Clouds of Smoke. Um, some, a, a pretty amazing uh, uh, hurricane uh, flag, Sebastian the Ibis-themed uh, shirt. Just uh, really, really tremendous stuff. And as somebody who uh, grew up deeply into the Miami programs of the early 2000s, um, this this was a collection that was fun to dive into. And uh, their sneak peek has revealed that the next one is Georgia, which means uh, more dogs on shirts. That's always good. Uh, so use the promo code Boca Problem for 15% off your first order from Homefield Apparel. That's at homefieldapparel.com. I'm going to hold off on doing the harassing Connor bit because I'm solo this week, and that uh, harassment is a fun group activity. And I'm, and you know, it's it just doesn't quite feel the same when I'm sitting here recording this on the couch by myself, and there is nobody on the other end of the line. So uh, we'll spice it up next week with the ad read. And in the meantime, we're gonna get into part two of this mailbag. The next question comes from at Brendan for AFC. Which player are y'all most excited to see on each side of the ball this year? Each host must have a different answer. And while I'm flying solo today, I was able to secure answers from Alex and Dan before diving into this. Um, as you will see, I'm a little upset with them for uh, taking the obvious names on defense. Um, so we'll start as the dog below me barks. Um, I have no idea if the mic is picking that up, but if it is, uh, my downstairs dogs, uh, uh, they, they notice the, the neighborhood a lot and they're very cute, but you know, focal. Um, sorry. I have no idea when it's going to stop. Otherwise I would stop and wait. Um, Alex's pick, uh, for offense is Cade McNamara. His reasoning is that McNamara has been named the starting QB already. So the season may live or die on his arm. Hopefully they've built the offense around his abilities he has a chance to be the most successful quarterback Michigan's had since at least Rudock. On defense, Daxton Hill. He has the physical profile to be a dominant Big Ten player, but his coaching has been less than ideal since he stepped on campus. If there's anyone who has tools to be a breakout star on defense, it's him. For Dan, he chose on offense AJ Henning because he's so damn fast. I just really like I just really feel like the sky is the limit for him. And on defense, he said. Aiden Hutchinson, because he'll be a lot more free to just rush the passer. He wants to see what he's like when he doesn't have anchor responsibilities. For my answer, I was actually a little tempted to say um, not A.J. Henning, uh, but a receiver who uh, is very similar, at least in terms of, uh, maybe not similar, but in terms of playing style, but the, the speed is the thing for him too in terms of the primary trait that we're looking at, and that's Roman Wilson. Um, I think Dan might be a, little, a year early on AJ Henning, although I am also very uh, excited by his talent. And I think Wilson's speed is just 
such a game changer in, in terms of, I, I mean, it's, it's really at uh, an extremely high level. And we saw him get himself open a fair amount. Uh, we've seen him be able to catch the ball downfield. And if there's a more vertical passing game and a quarterback who can get him involved there, I'm very excited to see what he can do. Um, that said, my, my answer, uh, as opposed to just um, kind of saying which one Dan should have chose, is Cornelius Johnson, uh, who I think is going to be the breakout player on the offense this year. He's looked very promising as, as by far the team's most like prototypical big-bodied outside receiver. He's 6'3", about 205, 210, um, gets off the line well, moves well downfield, uh, has solid ball skills from what we've seen and and has a nose for the end zone um, from what we've seen so far. So I, I'm really excited to see what he can do now that he's um, gotten more playing time as one of the primary outside receivers instead of kind of getting sent into block when one of Donovan Peoples-Jones uh, or whoever came off the field. Um, so uh, I'm I'm pretty excited to see what Cornelius Johnson can do this year. Uh, as for the defense, uh, I I was going to say Musa Giabate after the answers that were given, but the, I can't do that. Uh, so if, if I'm not allowed to say Dax Hill or Aiden Hutchinson, I, I'm going to go a little bit off the board here based on this defense um, and, and say David Ojabo, um, who has a chance to re- to be a really interesting edge rusher in this 3-4 defense. Um, he was a well-regarded prospect despite being super raw and from Aberdeen, Scotland. I mean, he, he did play in the States a little bit, but um, he, he obviously was a bit of a late developer in terms of picking up football because, you know, Scotland. And, uh, but he immediately jumped out once he started playing because he ran a sub-11 second 100-meter dash at about 235, 240 pounds, uh, started getting some major offers uh, coming in. And, you know, the film, you, you can see a ton of, from from high school, you can see a lot of physical ability and just also a lot of not really being sure how to play football yet. Um, and now... He's had two seasons on campus to reshape his body and really learn the game, and he should be a major factor at that um, edge spot across from Aiden Hutchinson, and I am really curious to see what he can do as um, as somebody for who I think fits that 3-4 DE spot really well and, and may have uh, kind of struggled to find a, a home in in the previous defense, at least a home that isn't situational. Um, so uh, there's a there's definitely a chance for him to break out. Next question comes from at Wade Goodell. How much of last year was an aberration and how much was real? And how does the staff changeover change this? A uh, short question that contains so much. Um, it's difficult to say uh, how to treat last year. I, I do understand the desire from a lot of people to sort of throw out the season. Um, it was not at all 
a normal year, and it certainly wasn't conducive to a team trying to do a lot of new things and have uh, you know young developmental QBs come into play. I, I mean, it, new fresh faces in the secondary, having top guys up out, their limited practice time heading in, the uncertainty about the season. I mean, I could go on and on about all the ways that last year – was really not normal and obviously and that you know we don't have there's only so much that we can really take away from it that said the the problems with the defense i I mean that that it became clear and we had seen the cracks forming in the foundation obviously mostly through um really not fun losses to ohio state uh that don brown's defense maybe was a little bit too single-minded uh, for where college football and the and the passing game, uh, where pretty much everybody is running, uh, incorporating a certain amount of air raid concepts. Uh, I mean, um, obviously, Michigan didn't have the horses to just play man-to-man last year, and then when they tried to play zone, it was it did not go well. Um, so. There were clear changes that needed to be made on the defensive side of the ball. I I think um, that we could take away from, and thankfully Michigan has addressed that. We'll see if the new defense is more effective than the old one, but at the very least, uh, they made a change that that needed to be made. And so it's it's going to be difficult. I, I mean. I don't know if anybody anybody who says they know how to figure out how to evaluate individual players after a season like that, uh, I think they're out over their skis a bit. Because um, who know, who knows how that impacted, uh, you know, just being able to lock into practice, being able to focus on the game. I mean, the the uncertainty of whether these games are going to happen during the off season, or the uncertainty of whether the season was going to happen at all. I mean, that's a lot for anybody, and, and certainly um, for to, to try to get you know, 85 scholarship players pulling in the same direction. So uh, we'll see how this year goes. I I do think moving the staff in hopefully a a more schematically progressive direction on defense, if that's the right way of putting it, at at least a more varied scheme on defense and and one that has uh, proven to work at the NFL level, um, which also has uh, a lot of these same passing concepts incorporated at, at this point. And then on offense, having you know having Mike Hart on staff, I I, I think it's great, and and hopefully adds a uh, a voice that can unite the locker room a little bit, and uh, and and we'll see if that's I mean the that obviously isn't going to solve all of Michigan's problems by any means, but hopefully we'll see um, some improvement um, from last year. I and you know. I don't think anybody who watched those losses occur would say that was an aberration. There were obvious systematic issues with the program. But was that a two and four team if you'd spread that out, out over the course of a normal season and made that, you know, a, you know, a four and eight team or whatever? I I don't think it was that bad. I, I I mean I I don't think that team with that talent would have performed that poorly in a normal year. I will say that. Um, did they deserve to go two and four last year? Yes, they might have deserved to go one and five because uh, Rutgers barely missed that kick. So yeah, um, it's uh, 
it's neither an aberration or um, something that we should, you know, hang on to every last little detail of. There, there is kind of this middle ground, and I, I mean, the only way we're going to figure it out, I think, for and you could say this for pretty much any program in the country, um, because there, there are teams last year that looked quite good that are probably going to have some rude awakenings uh, this season as well. Um, so, yeah, it, it, we're, we're just going to have to wait and see. I know I've been saying that a lot this podcast, but uh, that's that's kind of how this works. I'm sorry. Uh, next question comes from at Dam Glasgow. Uh, what 12-game record, excluding the bowl game and performance against OSU, MSU, PSU, and Wisconsin – would you put in a place where you are legitimately at peace with Harbaugh and company being at U of M going into next year? That's a loaded one. Um, it, yeah, I, I'm glad that our questioner uh, included specifically the four bigger games um, in conference uh, because I'm not as much focused on the win-loss column at the end of the season. Although I do think, you know, you, you've got to at least, I think Michigan has to beat MSU this season, um, unless there's some shocking turnaround uh, under Mel Tucker. That's just a roster that Michigan needs to beat, uh, both because there's just a lot more talent at Michigan than there is at, at, at MSU right now. This should be also a better coaching staff, uh, and Michigan has all the resources on its side. And yeah, I just, and they certainly should not lack for motivation after last year because that was highly embarrassing. So I think they have to take care of that and and take care of that in a way that is, um, that does not feel shaky. Um, The other games, it's tougher to say because, uh, I mean, Ohio State, I, I mean, I, if Michigan gets absolutely smashed by them, and they head in with a couple losses already on their record. I'm probably going. I'm going to be ready to pull the rip for it on Harbaugh. Um, but if Michigan is competitive and recruits see that, and they've, you know, Michigan has had a strong season heading into it. I, I don't think a loss to Ohio State should automatically mean that the the Harbaugh season era is over. Um, Penn State. I mean, they had a rough year last year. That also was probably. Um, a bit of a mirage because of the COVID season and also their own losses uh, right beforehand uh, with uh, Journey Brown and Micah Parsons not being on the team uh, specifically. Uh, Wisconsin, who knows? I mean, they had a a COVID breakout after their first game. Um, So there's a lot in flux there. Uh, As for a regular season record where I'd feel at peace with Harbaugh coming back going into next year, it's either nine and three or ten and two. It depends on the the form and fashion. I would say eight and four, it, even seven and five. I get the feeling Michigan might bring him back because he's on an upward trajectory at that point. I would hope, especially if you're in the seven and five area, that Michigan realizes that there's only going to be so many opportunities to snatch up a coach like Campbell or Fickle, who are only going to be at um, non-blue blood programs for so long. And yeah, um, I'm worried about missing out on an opportunity uh, just to keep uh, continuity going for something that doesn't necessarily have a lot of upside. So I, I, 
I'm less looking for a record and more looking for concrete signs of progress in terms of, okay, is the offense moving the ball in a way that feels sustainable and modern? Um, because, I, I mean, they're not going for the outman ball you thing anymore, so it, it needs to be modern and, and it needs to look cohesive. As uh, discussed earlier in this podcast, um, the defense needs to look a whole lot different from last year. Um, and But there's room for forgiveness for you know, new coaches on that side of the ball and, and installing scheme. This is another reason why I'm just not going to take that much away from the Washington game. So, yeah, I'm not I'm not pinning a number on this necessarily. Um, if I had to, honestly, like 10 and 2 would be the, the place where I'd feel really at peace with it because a lot of the reasons the program is where it's at right now and that and that 10 and 2 would be a real surpassing of expectations is that um Harbaugh has put this program in a position where 10 and 2 this year would be surpassing expectations so i it's a really difficult weighing game i imagine it is even more difficult for ward manual um what with being jim harbaugh's former teammate and all um and having you know yeah it's it's going to get complicated and I hope that the athletic department is committed to doing what's best for the program instead of making a really long, drawn-out effort to kind of either save face or just, I don't know, um, stick to this belief that it has to be Harbaugh because if Harbaugh doesn't win here, then who's going to? Um, While I believe I've probably said that in the past um, and— you know, I certainly understand the sentiment. Sentiment it is definitely reductive. Michigan is not a program that is going to be reliant on one person to save it, and that's the type of attitude that is probably holding the program back a little bit. For the last question, uh, we're not going to do vibes of the week because I'm the only one here. But uh, this question does a a nice uh, job of standing in for it. From at two but ten sixty on Twitter, a vibes question. Excluding the actual on-field game, what part of a Michigan football Saturday are you most excited for? I.e. tailgating, the walk through the neighborhoods, band take the field, etc. Um, so the first thing for me is, now I, I didn't get to experience it when I was living in Ypsilanti for six years, but in, but I, I mean, I mentioned earlier that I'm living not too far uh, from Michigan Stadium at the moment, and one thing leading up to the season and also on fall Saturdays that just always gets me going is being able to hear the band practice. And that is going to be something that charges me up even before a football Saturday hits is just hearing that sound, you know, kind of just wash over uh, Ann Arbor and, and know that the season's right around the corner. Uh, I mean, that's always something that it's really one of my favorite things about living here is just hearing both the the changing of the you know the the literal seasons coming and you know obviously hearing the action, the football season coming so uh and i think that's that part is going to be exciting and then the first time that the team runs out of the tunnel um there's just nothing like that um and then for for an in-person thing, I, I don't know if I'm going to attend a game in person this fall or not. I'm still kind of 
waiting on this COVID thing. And also, I don't think that tickets are going to need to be purchased too far in advance this year uh, to get into the stadium. Um, Seth's uh, Ticket Watch on MCO blog, uh, if you haven't read that post yet, did an incredible job of uh, listing out all the reasons why this ticket deal is sort of a scammy thing on Michigan's end and also um, how it really kind of artificially inflates the secondary market uh, for those digital tickets. Um, So it seems like waiting is kind of the play this year. Um, But anyway, um, the thing that struck me, I mean, I, I, I think this is the thing that really gets everybody the first time that they go to Michigan Stadium. And it's been a long time since I've been there as a fan. My last game as a fan was uh, the 2010 UConn game. I believe that was Denard Robinson's first start. Um, so, I mean, ever since then, I was working at MGO Blog. Um, so I've been to a lot of games, but I've been in the press box, and it's a it's a different experience. Um, but as a fan, what, what really gets you for the first time when you walk in is you just don't get how much of Michigan Stadium is underground until you head through head into your your gate and and you walk out and you realize that ground level is around row 70 and especially when the stadium has already filled most you know close to capacity and you walk in that that view is breathtaking there there are very few things like that and and it's it's powerful um and it's something that i mean for all of the reasons i've said that the the in-game experience doesn't really match up to what it used to be in a lot of ways um in large part just because of how much the watching from home experience has improved that's something that you can only get in a year when fans are in the stadium and you're at the game so whenever i am next at the big house as a fan i i that is going to be the thing that I most look forward to is just that that moment when, you know, the, the tunnel clears above you and, and all of a sudden you just see a sea of maize and blue around this field. It's it's a, it's a remarkable thing and something that, uh, I mean, other stadiums may have something comparable, but nobody does it quite as big as Michigan. And um, that... Um, you know, people can complain about the huge bowl layout of Michigan Stadium, maybe letting some of the noise out, although that's been less of a problem since the boxes were put in. But in terms of just having an amazing view when you walk into the stadium, it's one of a kind. And that's the end of this week's show. Um, yeah, we're, we're ended on a good vibe again. Um, follow at Buckle Pro- Bucket Problem on Twitter. Go to thebucketproblem.com. Subscribe to the newsletter and the podcast. Uh, we are on Apple Podcasts. I'm going to remind you again because uh, we were not for a while. Um, still working on the Google thing. We're on Spotify. We're on Stitcher. Um, please rate, review, um, all that good stuff. Uh, use the promo code Bucket Problem for 15% off your first order at homefieldapparel.com. Thank you for listening to the podcast. Hope you have a good week.